pastor. Uh, if you've not been joined, if you've not been with us as we've been making our way through, let me just give a, a couple things that will help as we as we begin our study today. Uh, first. Revelation is written in what we call apocalyptic genre. What this means is that we, when we read it, we read it symbolically. This book is full and filled with symbols and visions. And this type of writing was very popular between 200 BC and about 200 AD, particularly by persecuted people. Secondly, Revelation is not about figuring out when Jesus will return. There are many people that, that have come to this book and, and they get quite discouraged as they're going, I don't know when Jesus will return. It's not clear. I can't figure that out. And then some people will also say things like, you know, does it really matter if we study this book? I mean, does it matter how Jesus comes? I mean, it just matters that we know that he comes, right? But the book is not about how Jesus will return. And it is incredibly important for us to understand. This book has been inspired by the Holy Spirit, written for us, that it would be a gift for us. And we saw back in Revelation 1 that there is, there's a blessing for those who read and obey what is written in here. What we understand in this book is that this book tells us how we're to live as we await our King who's returning. So that's why it's important, is it's telling us about the times that we live in and about how we are to live. And that's what our text is today. Our text is going to inform us about how we are to understand the times that we live in. And so before we dig in, let me give just a brief outline of Roman, or Re- Revelation 12. There's three scenes. The first scene sets the stage. It, it introduces us to the characters. Scene number two, which is going to start in verse 7, it's going to show the victory that we have in Jesus, and it's going to tell what the implications are for the church. And then in verse 13, it's going to show the context that we live in as a church, and it's going to primarily use a wilderness-type setting. And so the main point is, is that as we, the church, we wade through the wilderness, which that's what we're going to find out that life is described according to the Bible and the times that we live, as we, the church, wade through the wilderness and we're longing for glory, longing for the return of Christ, we are victorious in Christ. And we're going to see how that all comes together today in this passage. So one thing that we do here when we gather and we read the Word of God is we stand. And so I'm going to ask that you stand as we read the Word. We're going to read all of chapter 12. We stand because... We believe God's word comes with full authority and inerrancy, and it's a way to honor and respect our Heavenly Father. Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who is one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they, are, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, given, who had been given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she, be, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let me pray. Father, give us wisdom now as as we look at this word. God, give us understanding. You have given us this passage for the edification of the church for the strengthening of the church, that we might grow in our faith today, that our love for you might be increased as we better understand what your son Jesus has done for us, that we might strengthen one another as we realize the times that we are in and the necessity of the fellowship of the church. God, strengthen us also today that we'd be more aware uh, of the enemy, of, of Satan, how he attacks and how we stand firm. God, we thank you for your word and your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, so it's a strange text. I got to tell my kids, they said, what are you preaching on? Well, dragons, serpents, you know, just normal preaching, you know, Bible stuff. Just kind of looked at me. They kind of know we're in Revelation, so they know it's awkward and weird. Uh, so so they, they played along. Um, So let's go ahead. We're going to make our way through. We have three scenes. The first scene, the dragon fails to kill the child. And so here's a quick summary. We have a woman trying to give birth. There's a hideous seven-headed dragon ready to eat the baby when she is born. And then all of a sudden, the child seems to ascend to the throne room of God where he will rule the nations, and the woman goes off to the wilderness. So that's the first scene. So what's going on? Uh, So if we kind of just make our way through the characters, the first thing we see is the woman is going to represent the people of God, both Old Testament and New Testament. In verse 1, we see John sees a great sign. Not just a sign, but it's a great sign. A woman is clothed with sun, standing over the moon, crowned with 12 stars. So she's brilliant. She has dominion as she stands over the moon. 
and 12 stars. Well, 12 probably surely refers to the 12 tribes of Israel, but it also surely refers to the 12, 12 disciples. After all, the, the, the number 12 is symbolically used throughout Revelation and its multiple as a reference to the people of God. Also, in the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they will refer to Israel as a whole, as a woman, and they'll even refer to as a pregnant woman. Paul calls the, calls the church the bride of Christ. So, woman is a way to corporately refer to the people of God. Now, the point here is that she's in agony giving birth. We read, she, she's in agony as she longs for the birth of her child. Now, why? Why is, why is she in this agony? Well, back in the Garden of Eden, what we know is that Satan came into the garden, tempted Adam and Eve. And because of that, sin came into the world. God then comes into the garden, and, and He judges. He judges the serpent. He judges the man. He judges the woman. He judges creation. But then He gives us hope. And in Genesis 3.15, what's called the, the proto-evangelium, which is the big famous word for the first glimpse of the gospel, It says that, God says that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So as we make our way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we're looking for this seed of the woman who will come and be the serpent crusher, who will gather God's people and bring them into the presence of God. This is who we've been looking for the entire Old Testament. This is why we keep genealogies, which you all love to read in the Bible, right? Like no one just skips something, you know, like to the bottom. Okay, so we all do that, but we're not supposed to. Because there's a point to them. They're tracing the serpent crusher. They're helping us understand from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David, this king that's going to come and crush the serpent and bring God's people into the presence of God. And what we see is that this woman is giving birth. Through the Old Testament people of God, Israel, God has promised that He will bring about the seed of the woman. And so she's giving birth. She's come into the maternity ward. She's on the table. And she's in agony. She's laboring as she's pushing for the child to come. And then we switch characters to a dragon. And verse 9 confirms that this dragon is Satan. It gives us many names. It says uh, he is called the serpent, the devil, Satan, deceiver. And in verse 10, he's called the accuser. And this, this dragon wants nothing more than to kill the child. And so you're, you're to get this picture in your head. The woman is on the table pushing for the child to come and there's a seven-headed dragon crouched over her with his mouth open ready to devour the child as soon as the child takes its first breath. It's supposed to be hideous. It's supposed to be disgusting. We're supposed to recoil and go, this is disgusting. That's the point. Here we have Satan trying to foil the plans of God. But then notice what happens is that this baby is going to be caught up into the throne room of God. Now before we get there, notice one more thing about the dragon. He's got seven heads and and ten horns. Again, remember, it's symbolic. Seven heads and ten horns doesn't work, does it? I mean, where where do you put them? Like you got three extra, right? 
So the number seven refers to completion, perfection. Ten can also refer to completion and, and dominion and sovereignty. And so what we have here is we have a dragon who is all-powerful, who, who has sovereignty. He's the perfect, complete picture of evil. With his tail, a third of the stars fall from the sky. And so what chance does this child have? Surely none. That's how we come into this text. And then we see in verse 5, the child is born a king who will rule the nations. And then he ascends to the throne room of God. Well, who is this? It's Jesus. It's none other than Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the briefest summaries of the entire gospel in the Bible. In In this verse, we have the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ to where He now reigns at the right hand of God on His throne. Which, if you remember in Revelation 1, we got a picture of, right? He comes in all of His glory and splendor, holding the keys of death and Hades. Or also we see in Revelation 5, this picture of Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, being worshipped by all the nations, being worshipped by all that is in heaven. And so, Jesus is the one who has ascended to the throne room of God. The dragon, with all of his might, with all of his power, he failed. He failed to kill and destroy Jesus. I mean, he thought he won, right? By killing Jesus, but in fact, he lost. Jesus rose from the grave. He holds the keys of death in Hades. He sits on the throne of God. He rules the nations. The cross is a symbol of destruction for Satan and a victory of Jesus. That's what you're to think of. When you look at the cross, destruction, defeat of Satan, and the victory of Jesus. So that's the context. That's how we start. And now we go into the second scene, verses 7-12, through 12, and that's going to expound how was this dragon defeated? It's going to look more deeply into that and then what the implications are for the church. So we see the dragon loses all power because of the cross of Christ. That's the second scene. Verse 7, we have a heavenly war being fought between the army of God led by the powerful angel Michael against the dragon and against his army. And in verse 9, we see the dragon is thrown down. In fact, if you look, five times we read the words thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, referring to the dragon and his army. What's the point? I mean, there's a point in reiteration, right? When you speak to your kids, go to your room, go to your room, go to your room. What's the point? You better get to your room very quickly. Pick up the toy, pick up the toy. I mean, do it now, right? There's a point. There's, there's emphasis and reiteration. So he's been thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down, thrown down. Has Satan won? No. Clearly, John wants us to see Satan has lost. First scene, we see he loses. Second scene, we see he loses as well. Now remember, he's got seven heads and ten horns. He's the most ultimate, powerful, evil force that there is. And yet he's no match for God. The Bible never puts Satan and God against one another as if they're equal adversaries. Notice that as you read through. This isn't like, you know, the force in in Star Wars and the dark, evil force. What is that? 
the dark side. I'm not a Star Wars guy. I'm more of an Avenger type person. So anyways, but he never pits them against each other. They're not equal forces. No, we have God who's infinite. And then there's Satan who's a created finite creature under the rule and sovereign, sovereign power of God who will one day be cast into the lake of fire. Not infinite, right? So they're not equal forces here. So why is he defeated? Is it because Michael is so strong? Is that, is that what we see? Michael, the great archangel who comes to the aid of the saints in the church, he comes and he's the one who defeats Satan? Is that how we're to read this? Look at verse 10. A loud voice comes from heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. What is that? That's the Gospel. That's verse 5 now being expounded upon all the more. Satan is defeated because Jesus at the cross defeated him. That's what happened. Michael has victory in heaven because Jesus was victorious at the cross. What Jesus does on the cross impacts both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. In fact, we get a glimpse of this in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Back in the Gospels, Jesus sends out his disciples. I think this is where he sends out the 72. And they go and they preach the kingdom of God. And as they return, Jesus says, based upon the preaching of the kingdom, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You see, at the, through the preaching of the kingdom of God, Satan is pushed back. And Jesus at the cross ushers in the kingdom of God. By dying on the cross, providing salvation to all who would believe in Him, that they would be forgiven and saved. God's kingdom has come into this world. Jesus is the long-awaited serpent crusher. He is the one who has brought the kingdom of God. And we can summarize the kingdom of God at this stage as the rule of God. And right now, we the church, we have begun to experience this rule. And what that means is we begin to experience the blessings of what it is to be God's people. Now remember, when Jesus comes, He inaugurates the kingdom. So it's begun. When He returns, it will come in its full consummation. Right now, the church is really only those who recognize and experience the blessings of God's kingdom. But there will be a day come... When Jesus returns, His kingdom will come in all of its fullness, and all those who have believed in Jesus will be gathered, will be brought into the new heavens and new earth, where God's kingdom will fill the earth, and every single person and creature will give praise to God constantly. There will be no rebellion. And on that day, all who have rejected God, Satan, and all who have followed Him, all who have denied Jesus, will be thrown into the lake of fire. They will recognize the judgment of the kingdom of God. And so right now, again, coming back, we the church are beginning to experience the blessings. The way we love one another, the way we forgive, the way we're patient, the way we treat one another is a picture of God's kingdom. And and as we do that in this world, it's a way in which the world has a glimpse into the kingdom of God. So one of the reasons we gather 
is to give a picture of what this kingdom looks like. And one of the reasons we gather outside and we will go do things together, we do missions together, and as we're families and we go out together, we're revealing God's love, His rule, and His blessings, and His presence to the people in this world. Okay, so we see that at the cross, Satan's defeated, and it's at the cross he loses his power and all authority. So how does that impact the church? If we go back to the second half of verse 10, we read, For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So the kingdom of God has come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. So so there's three things that I want to point out here. Number one, We are victorious because Jesus was victorious. That's that's what it means that we have conquered him, that we have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. The way we overcome Satan is not by our strength. It's not by your power. It's not by your might. It's not what you bring to the table at all. The Bible's not meant to make us feel big about ourselves. It's all about pointing us to the grace and the power and the sovereignty of God. And so what we have here is that you are conquerors by the blood of Jesus. Only by the blood of Jesus do we have victory. There is no victory apart from Jesus. Our victory is tied to Jesus. So by grace, through faith in Jesus, we become victorious of no work of our own. So you do not merit the kingdom of God. God's not going, well, wow, I mean, you, you just really knocked it out of the park. I am so excited to have you on my team. I'm drafting you, pulling you up to the big leagues. That's not what's happening. It's only by God's grace. Because Jesus at the cross conquers. And a big doctrine that everyone needs to know is this union with Christ. So when we come and we believe in Jesus Christ, there's this thing we call a union with Christ, meaning we're joined together to Christ. All that He has becomes all that we have. His victory, our victory. His righteousness, our righteousness. He's a Son of God, we are... Do you get it? It's because of union with Christ. When we believe in Him, God just doesn't bring us into the, into the kingdom and say, okay, you're on that side of the kingdom, and my son and myself will be on this side. We don't have servants' quarters. Alright, make sense? We are all family in the kingdom of God. Sons of the King. And that's not to be some masculine, just something, but it's, it's to show our identity in Jesus. We become the children of God. So that's first what we need to see. And know that if you have believed in Jesus, you are a conqueror. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes to the churches and He says that by persevering in their faith, they will be conquerors. It's not that they will achieve victory. It's that they will live out the victory that God has already given them in Jesus. So if you've believed in Jesus, you are a conqueror. You're victorious in Christ. Now secondly, we also see we're victorious by our testimony in Jesus. I think that means at least two things. First, I think it does refer to our our personal testimony that we have personally trusted in Jesus. 
So if you're here and you have personally trust, you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who has died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and only by Him and through Him can you have forgiveness of sins, then, then you are saved. And you have victory. That is the greatest testimony that you can have. But secondly, I believe by saying we are victorious by our testimony, it shows that our faith in Jesus is lived out. It transforms the way that we live. Because he writes, for they love not their lives even unto death. So that's got to impact the way we read we're victorious by the testimony of Jesus. I mean, if you go back, it says, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for. Is that word that for is going to connect for they love not their lives unto death. So that connects how we understand their testimony. And so what we have is as the church, as we believe in Jesus Christ and we're saved and we're given this testimony now that shows that we are conquerors, it now affects us as we go out that we would proclaim the gospel every single day in the way we live, with our actions, and certainly with our words, even to the point that it may cost us our lives. That's the whole point where it says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I really believe, like one thing I've, uh, I've, I've grown in my understanding as we're making our way through Revelation, I think Revelation largely is an explanation of what it means when Jesus says, take up your cross in Luke 9, 23, 24. And I believe it's a very large explanation of Romans 8. Romans 8 is, is a great chapter. If you've not read that, read that later, where it talks about that all who are in Christ have been joined to Christ. There's no more condemnation. And then at the end of the chapter, it talks about nothing can separate us from His love. And so, see, we, we go out into the world proclaiming the gospel, even if it costs us our lives. Why? Because nothing separates us from Christ. Because we are conquerors. Because even by our death, it tells the world the victory of Jesus Christ. We're, we so much trust in the victory of Jesus and that we are conquerors in Him. You can take my life and that means nothing to me because to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Paul says, right? Really look at Revelation. It's just pulling from these truths that we have in other parts of the Bible and it's just expounding upon them. Now there's something else we need to see here too. See, Satan in verse 10 is called the accuser. And now he's been thrown down, so no longer can he do what? Accuse us. Now, that might sound somewhat strange. A couple times in the Old Testament, we see that it appears Satan be- appears before God. If you remember in the book of Job, Satan comes before God, and he says, you know this Job guy? He doesn't really love you. Mm-mm. In fact, he only likes you because of the things you've given him. If you take those things away, he won't love you. He's accusing Job. He doesn't really have faith in you. He doesn't love you. In in Zechariah chapter 3, Satan comes again before God and says, you know Joshua the high priest? Not worthy. Mm -mm. He can't be the high priest. He's dirty. He's got dirty rags on. So he's accusing the people of God before God. And what we understand is that is a role that he has. But now, because Jesus has gone to the cross and died and rose, he can't accuse us anymore. Do you understand that? 
No longer can he make any accusation against those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 John 1.7 The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin hebrews 10 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all those for all time those who are being sanctified being made holy second corinthians 5 21 one of the best verses in the bible for our sake he made him to be sin this is jesus to who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god we call that one the great exchange jesus who knew no sin took our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's the exchange. We give, him, we give him our sin, he gives us our righteousness, and that's the great exchange that we have in the Bible. And so, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. You are justified. You are innocent. You are sanctified. You are holy you have been redeemed you are purified you are loved you are counted as precious before him you are a child of god you are a citizen of his eternal kingdom and you are an heir with christ amen Amen. because jesus conquered you by faith in him have conquered there is no ground that satan has against you do you realize that no ground. Now just because Satan can no longer stand before God and saying, well, he's not worth it. Because now the blood of Jesus covers you. And God says, well, he's righteous. He is the, the covering of my son upon him. Just because that happens does not mean Satan won't still try to infect us with his lies. He will still whisper things into your ear like, you're not good enough. You're not, you're not really forgiven. You, you can't be clean. You're not wanted. You're not loved. Other people are, but, but you're not. You're not worthy. Do you, ever, do you ever hear lies like that? Do you ever hear those whisperings in your ear? Not you. No, those, those promises apply to other people, not you. That's, that's what he wants to do now. He can't come before God, but he can whisper the lies into your ears. He wants you to feel defeated, depressed. So how do we respond? How do we respond? With a resounding no. Right? We say no, that's not true. We come back to verses like we just read. I am justified. I am declared righteous. I am adopted. Not because of anything I've done. We can agree with Satan. You're right, I'm not worthy. You're right, I'm not clean. You're right, i got nothing I can offer. What's the good news? I don't have to. That's the beauty of saved by grace. Through faith alone in Christ alone. You see that? So what we do when we hear the lies, rather than sit there in passivity and go, 
oh man, maybe this is what I am. No, we respond with the Word of God. We take the truth of God's Word and we apply it to ourselves. We're not misapplying, we're we're taking it as it's been written for us, for the edification of the church, and we say, this is what God says I am right now. Not by my works, not by my actions, not by my merit, all by the grace of God. Because if it was up to us, eh, we'd be up a creek. Right? Right? Like we'd be up a creek. There's no chance. Remember this. Satan has been defeated, defanged, and he's awaiting final destruction. Remember that. His lies are nothing but empty air of a Satan of a serpent who's going into the fiery pit of hell. His lies, that's all they are. But we have the truth of God's Word. So we must come back to this. Make sure that this is what defines us. This is where we gain our understanding. This is why verse 12, we read, Rejoice, O heavens! In their joy... Because of victory in Christ? Isn't there joy? And we can share in this joy because, because we know our final home is with God. So we rejoice. Rejoice. There's great joy. We are covered in the blood of Christ. By grace through faith we've been declared righteous and there's nothing that can change that. And we need to know that news, right? Because in scene three things get a little bit trickier. Because at the end of verse 12, we read, Satan's been thrown down to earth. And woe to those on the earth. Because he has great wrath, for his time is short. So we'll look at that in a moment. I think many people, uh, including Christians, they want to know what the future will look like. I think, I think we want to know. We all want to think things will get better, Right? We want to think global peace is possible. Or at least that in in our country, maybe we can overcome war. Maybe we can overcome racism. Maybe we can overcome segregation. Maybe we can overcome a lot of those things here. And we can have unity. Perhaps we think maybe places like Europe and, and America that have had great historical Christian movements, maybe Maybe those will be revived. And all of America will be saved. All of Europe will be saved. Maybe we we think that. Maybe we we wonder that. We want to think that maybe if we say things the right way, Christianity and the Gospel will be widely accepted. Maybe, Maybe I just need to say it better. If I can just craft my words and so they're elegant and eloquent, people will surely hear them. I think even one of the questions we had at one of the end of our sermons two, three weeks ago was, you know, what do we believe the future is of America? We do know revival is possible, and it surely goes, around and goes on in places of the world right now. We know the gospel will continue to go forth so the people of all nations will be saved. And we know also that evil and suffering will increase as well. Remember that parable of the tares? Parable of the weeds, where they, they go out into the field, the servants go out in the field, and they, they plant 
um, and, and all the wheat is growing, then, then evil, uh, the enemy comes in, they plant weeds, and so now weeds are coming in among the tares. And so the servants come up to the king, uh, and they say, should we go pull the weeds? And he says, no, no, we'll let them both grow, the wheat and the weeds, until the end, and then we'll harvest it all together. And what that tells us is that, yes, the kingdom of God is going to advance in this world, and yet also... Pain, suffering, evil, Satan's kingdom is going to continue to grow as well. And we know the end story. We know that God's kingdom triumphs. But we know that while we're on earth, they are going to move together. Satan has been defeated. He knows that he's been defeated. He knows the time is coming when Jesus will grab him by the tail and throw him into the lake of fire. His hourglass is getting to the last grains of sand. And because of this, he's mad. We read, he hates God and all of God's people, so he spends his last days attacking the church. He knows his time is short. That's why he attacks. He knows his time is short. What we have is the desperate attempt of a defeated dragon here. We need to realize that. This is is how the chapter is set up before we get into this last section. Satan's been defeated, Satan's been defeated, the church is victorious, and yet we see now the dragon's coming down onto earth where the church is, and he's angry, and he has wrath. And this is now describing where we live. So the last point, the dragon pursues the church into the wilderness. Verse 6, so this part is expounding on verse 6. Verse 6, we're told, The woman fled to the wilderness where she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 14, we read, The woman was given wings like an eagle to fly from the serpent into the wilderness where she would be nourished for time, times, and half a time. The serpent pursues the woman into the wilderness, and from his mouth comes a river in which he wants to drown her. The woman is spared, and then we see the dragon goes after the children of the women, which is surely another way of just referring to the people of God. So what do we need to understand? Number one, we the church live in a wilderness type setting. Clearly, that's what he wants us to see. The woman goes off into the wilderness. Given eagle's wings to fly off into the wilderness. Just like in Exodus 19 verse 4, like, Jesus, like God says, with wings of an eagle, he brought his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai. In the Old Testament, Israel was saved from Egypt, brought into the wilderness. The wilderness is the place in between salvation and the promised land. Remember, Israel comes out of Egypt, they go into the wilderness, and then there's the promised land. Now, they, they, they took an extra long time in the wilderness, didn't they? Like a 40-year detour? But wilderness is the in-between time as we wait to go into the promised land. Wilderness is a time of preparation for God's people. Now, think about this. In Jesus Christ, you are saved. That's the greatest exodus there is. Bringing us out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. And we're told that when Christ returns, he will what? Bring about a new heavens and new earth. A much greater promised land, right? So we've come out. We have salvation. We're waiting for the new heavens and new earth, which will happen when Christ returns. And so where do we live now? We live in the wilderness. That's why Peter will say we're sojourners here. This isn't really our land. As as Israel went through the wilderness, they were sojourners. So the first thing we see is that we are in a wilderness-type setting. So what what are we to expect in the wilderness? 
So there's a few things that we have here. Number one, pain. And, and I stuck with P's. You'll see. So we start with pain. And that's going to refer to hurt, persecution, suffering, disease, and whatever else might come. And how long is that going to last? Well, 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. Um, now, is that literal? Well, probably not, because most all numbers are symbolic in this, in this book. Uh, 1,260 days, or three and a half years, was extremely important time frame for the people of God in the, in the first century. Um, we have important numbers, too. When I say 9-11, what does that make you think of? Right? Terrorist attack, Twin Towers, right? When we say four score and seven years ago, what does that make you think of? You guys know that, right? All right, just checking. All right. Um, so back in 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes came and he persecuted the Jewish people. He killed Jews. He burned the scrolls of God's word. He sacrificed uh, pigs in the temple of God. He set up false idols in the temple of God. He basically made it hell on earth for God's people. And we looked at this back in Daniel 8, 9, and 10 earlier this year. So if you want to go back, you can find those sermons. This lasted for, guess how long? Three and a half years. Until Judas Maccabeus led a revolution against Antiochus Epiphanes in which they pushed them out and Israel once again gained its freedom for a short period of time. That is what Hanukkah celebrates. So if you're wondering what Hanukkah celebrates, it's from the Maccabean Revolution. Now, 1,260 days, three and a half years, was a time engraved in the people of God of persecution. So when, when it's mentioned here, they know exactly what that refers to. We mentioned 9-11, you know exactly what that refers to. Four score, seven years ago, I know exactly. When, we, when these words get, when these numbers get told, everyone's tracking at that time frame, there's, there's a time of persecution. It's not literal 1,260 days, it's a symbolic time of persecution. So what we know then is, is life is hard in the wilderness. In fact, in chapter 13, which we'll look at next week, we'll look at, there's a beast that comes out of, the, out of uh, the, the ocean, and then there is a false beast that arises, and we'll look at how God uses those and what those are for the purpose of persecution and difficulty. Um, but we know there's pain in the wilderness. So how does Satan attack? Well, we told, we already said he can't accuse us anymore because we're conquerors in Christ. Now, in some places, in other parts of the world especially, he simply kills Christians, right? It's illegal to be a Christian in North Korea. You can be killed in India. You can be killed in many parts of the Middle East for being a Christian. But that's not always his M.O. In other places, like here in America, Canada, Europe, um, he doesn't have to kill you. But what he might do, he might actually give you everything that you want. Ever think of that? He might actually give you everything that you want. He wants to satisfy you with everything in this world. Because when we're satisfied with the things of this world, what are we not looking towards? We're not looking to God and to the grace that we need in Jesus Christ and the fact that there's a new heavens and new earth. Or, 
what he'll do, he'll begin to attack everything that you have. Your marriage. Attack you as a parent. You're not good enough. Or just the difficulties and the problems in parenting. Or children. You're in on this too. I don't want to submit to my parents. And he will, he will fan into flame that lust that we have of independence. That lust that we have of no one's going to have authority over me. No one's going to tell me what to do. And he will fan that flame of our hearts into a great roaring fire. Say, no. No, I'm not going to do what you say. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a spouse, whether you're a coworker, you will attack every area of our life. That, that's what happens. So think about it. what brings division in into our marriage, into our into our homes, into our workplaces, into the church. Now, I'm not saying Satan's behind every single one. But our sin is there, but he wants to fan into flame our sinful thoughts. That's, a, that's often how he attacks, especially here in the West. And don't think that that's not terrible compared to those who are being killed in other parts of the world. It is very effective. There's many people who want nothing to do with Christianity because of the way they view Christians. And Satan sees that as a pretty big success. There's one way. We know there's going to be pain. We know there's going to be hardship. And we know that Satan's going to want to use every single one of them to draw us away from God. Saying, see, God can't provide for you. God's not really there. He's not with you. He doesn't love you. If he really loved you, he wouldn't let you go through this. Have you ever felt those kind of things? Those are the lies that he whispers every single day. But that's not all. We'll look more of that next week. So yay, next week. Nobody will be here. Um, but there's, there's other really good things in the wilderness. His presence. We're not alone. In the Old Testament, Israel's going through the wilderness. Do you remember what they had? A, a cloud by day and what? A pillar of fire by night. That was God's presence with His people constantly leading them, guiding them, showing them where to go, when to stop. And who do we have with us? The Holy Spirit dwells inside every single believer. Do you know that? He dwells within every single believer. The person of the Holy Spirit. You have God dwelling in you. And so why is it that we can resist the lies and temptations of Satan? Not because of your power and strength, but because God dwells within us that we would resist as we have faith in Him. So remember, we have God's presence with us. Just as He guided and provided everything that Israel needed, so He does so much more for us now in Jesus Christ. Next, provision. Notice verses 6 and 14. We're told the woman will be nourished in the wilderness. So actually, the way wilderness is depicted here, we know there's suffering, but the suffering comes from what? A defeated dragon. So in this time also is a time of nourishment. See, we don't need to despise this, this time that we live in thinking, oh, this is just terrible. No, there's great wonders here. God is working in you right now, perfecting you and preparing you for glory. He's teaching you about His character. 
about his grace and about his mercy. He's showing us how we can trust in him each and every day. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that we are the bride of Christ being made clean for the wedding day. Do you realize that? That's what God's doing for us right now. He's purifying the church. He's sanctifying the church. He's making us ready for that day. This is what we read in Hosea chapter 2. Notice what it says about the wilderness. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Here, this wilderness is this time of wooing of the groom, right? He's speaking tenderly to his bride, wooing her wooing her to him, preparing him, or preparing us for him. This is what is happening right now in the wilderness. So when Satan brings about pains and trials and afflictions, God is also using those pains and trials and afflictions for what? To grow us, to prepare us, to help us understand his grace and his character and his presence and his love. This is why Romans 5 says this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Or or James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. So do you see what's amazing in this time? All the things Satan wants to do to distract and destroy, God uses for the purpose of building, of perfecting, of sanctifying, of making us perfect for that day when Christ returns. And so what what Revelation does, and we've said this several times, it pulls back the curtain. It helps us to see the true reality of things. So when we are bombarded by life's difficulties, and we're going, man, where is God? What is happening here? We come back and we go, wait a minute. Jesus has conquered the serpent. He's thrown him down. We have victory in Christ. We are conquerors now. And we know that we live in this time of wilderness where God right now is preparing us for glory. And He does that often through trials of testing and affliction. So we can know that things are coming our way. No, we probably would never choose them. But He is doing what is best as a means of preparing the church. So so whatever's going on in your life right now, difficulty in marriage, difficulty in parenting, difficulty in finances, difficulty at work, difficulty maybe just, just where you're at personally, just having worth, just having the desire to, to, to get up and move forward each day. You are victorious in Christ. And as we come back to His Word, We're reminded of the grace of God each and every day. You are not alone. Do you know that? Whatever comes your way, you're not alone. You're not defeated. Satan is defeated, defamed, and awaiting destruction. You are victorious in Christ. We must know that. So life is hard. There will be pain. Satan will try to discourage But let us remember, we are simply passing through this earth. We have a much better home. 
a much better home. And it is guaranteed for all who have faith in Christ. And we long for that day. And right now, the purpose of the wilderness is to increase the longing. Do you want it? Do you want Christ to return? That's what he's doing. He's increasing the longing. He's increasing our desire to see Christ. And so as we make our way through the wilderness, we proclaim the gospel. We know it'll be ignored. We know it'll be rejected. But we know it'll also be accepted, right? Because there will be a people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every language, and they will be gathered before the throne for all times. So the church is in the wilderness, longing for the glory, and we are victorious now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. God, sometimes it's hard understanding some of the things in Revelation. But God, continue to increase our clarity. Continue to give us wisdom. And God, I pray for the church here today. I pray. I pray that today, each person here who has placed their faith in you would know they are victorious. Not because of their merit, not because of their worth, not because of what they offer, but because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And may they know they are victorious and there is nothing that can change that. So may we walk in victory as we wade through the wilderness. God, may we see all the trials, all the testings, all the pains, all the afflictions, all the persecutions that we experience. Yes, while Satan wants to use them to destroy us, you are using them to build us, to strengthen us. That we would become more and more like you, made in your image. God, we thank you that you're with us. Thank you for this book of Revelation that gives us an understanding of the times that we live in so that we know what to expect, both now and in eternity. So God, give us faith. Strengthen us. And Lord, if there is anyone here who is not yet trusted in you, may they see from your word that all who reject you, there is no hope for. There is destruction that awaits But now is the time for repentance. And Lord, I pray that if anyone doesn't know you, they'd repent today trusting you have come. Your son has come, died on a cross. We could have life and have it abundantly. And that we will dwell with you forever. So God, I pray someone is here that has not known you, has not repented, has not trusted in you, today they would, that we would not leave this room unchanged, but today we would become children of God, not because of our merits, but because of your grace. Father, we thank you for all that you give us in Jesus. Strengthen us today. In your name, Jesus, amen.